This is Intersection, I'm Matthew Petty. From March to December last year, about 57,000 eviction notices were filed in Florida, and that number is likely an undercount. It's just one of the startling statistics in reporting from the Orlando Sentinel in a series called Locked Out. It's about the eviction crisis as the pandemic amplified an already perilous housing situation for thousands of residents. For more about the housing crisis and the long-term implications, I spoke to the Sentinel's Caroline Glenn and Desiree Stennett. Well, Caroline Glenn is a business reporter covering workers, housing and economic injustice. Caroline, it's nice to see you again and thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. And Desiree Stennett is a senior reporter at the Orlando Sentinel. She writes about race and inequality in Florida. Thank you as well. Of course, I'm happy to be here. So Caroline, I want to start with you. In the first part of the series, you report on the situation of one family who lost their jobs due to the pandemic and then lost their home. What stood out for you in the reporting on this story? So for this particular family, the Bennett family, the reason they stuck out to me is because they were evicted before any of these eviction moratoriums were put into place or before the federal government had provided the the money to prop up these rental assistance programs that cities and counties now have. So they are an example of how fast-paced and harsh eviction can be. The mom in this situation, she was a nursing assistant, and the dad had been between jobs finding work at a temp agency. And as soon as the mom lost her job in March, they quickly fell behind on the rent, and their landlord told them to leave. It wasn't a court process. They didn't have a hearing. They didn't tell the judge their side of the story. You know, financial hardship is not usually a defense in the case of eviction. Uh, The moratorium gave people a way to get in front of a judge, but the Bennett's are illustrative of how this process normally plays out. And they today are living in one of those pay-by-the-week hotels where they pay $400 a week. They live in one room. Mom and dad sleep in one bed, and their five kids who are all under the age of six sleep in another. And that's really what the fallout from eviction can look like in the state of Florida. Desiree, I'd like to bring you into this conversation now. Your part of the series drops today. What did you find in your reporting? Um, In the simplest terms, what we found was that in zip codes with the largest Black populations across Central Florida, um, we tended to see the highest eviction rates as well. Um, And that is something that was the case before the pandemic hit. And during the pandemic, even as Caroline was saying that the moratoriums and the rental assistance programs were put into place, we saw that in majority Black areas, the eviction rates held that they were higher when there are more black residents living in a particular area. Mm -hmm. And this is something that Caroline pointed out in her reporting. Um, There's a, there's a kind of a a health and safety aspect of this too, right? I mean, people who are evicted, you know, if you don't have a home in a situation where at least as it was in 2020, where people were being told essentially shelter in place, that's a pretty, big kind of chasm in terms of how do you protect your family from a a pandemic, right? Absolutely. Um, One expert we spoke to talked about how just getting an eviction notice on your door, even if you're never actually evicted, can lead to worse health outcomes, both physically and mentally for families. And in this particular situation, I think in the past year, we've had a lot of conversations about health equity, and we've seen nationwide that Black residents, Black Americans, were more likely to die from COVID-19 than um, their white counterparts. And I think that that 
paired with the fact that black residents are more likely to be evicted uh, really creates a scary situation where um, we know that those most vulnerable to poor health outcomes are being thrown into situations where they may be doubling up with family uh, if they're lucky after an eviction, um, which can increase the number of people in a, in a household and therefore can increase the likelihood of someone getting COVID-19 in the household and spreading it throughout. Um, and the same for in even worse situations where if you don't have family to stay with, um, you could end up in a homeless shelter with, I mean, hundreds of strangers and your likelihood of getting COVID-19 spikes even higher. And this is among a community that is, like I said, more likely to die of the symptoms. When you follow people and follow their stories for that long. I mean, a story you tell about them one month can be profoundly different the next month, right? Have there been some positives out of that? Or has it been sort of a, a downward slide? Because some of the stories are pretty grim. Well, for one of my tenants, that woman, Alexis Green, the, the mom of two from Claremont, her story changed while we were reporting. Uh, when I first met her, she had had a, an eviction filed against her in court, but she had filed the CDC moratorium, and so her case was halted. That was back in September last year. Uh, but then her landlord asked for another hearing because he wanted to challenge the CDC moratorium. I sat with her during her court hearing, which was held over Zoom, and although I'm not an attorney or a legal expert, I walked away from it thinking, I thought she had a pretty solid case, and I thought that the judge would rule in her favor and she'd be able to continue to stay. About a week later, later Alexis called me on the phone in tears in her bathroom so that her kids wouldn't hear she had gotten the bad news that the judge ruled against her. And... We did not expect that to happen. So reporting on these stories can be very difficult because, like you said, things are changing in an instant. This is a very fast-paced process sometimes. And someone who we thought was going was in a stable situation then became homeless. Alexis is now living with a friend. Her two kids are living with their dad. I went back to her house and hung out with her while she literally packed up her entire house, you know, putting all of their belongings, all of their memories into trash bags, loading them into a moving truck to be put into storage. So there were some aspects of the story that literally changed while we were doing the reporting. What did you find, Desiree? Um, I think I I would agree with with Caroline here. And I think what's important to to, to take away from this is that when we heard that there was going to be a moratorium on evictions, I think the the takeaway from that is no one is getting evicted. And 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 I think what we found during this project is that is that's just false. Of the four families that we featured in this story, only one of them is still in her home. And she is at a place where she is attempting to prepare for what will happen um, if she is evicted. Um and her name is Bathsheba Collingwood. She lives in um, along Mercy Drive in one of the zip codes that are featured in my story as one of the zip codes with the highest black populations in the in the region. And um, she has watched literally dozens of her neighbors be evicted since she moved into her apartment um, last May. And she when when I met her, she had already been filed. Um, her, her landlord had already filed one eviction against her and a judge had already decided that she should stay because she was to be protected by the CDC order. However, um, 
when I met her, it was just weeks after the county had paid the landlord $4,000 to help catch her up on back rent. And a part of that agreement through the through the, through the rental assistance program through Orange County was that residents were not supposed to get filed against them again for at least 60 days. And less than a month later, she was facing eviction again. And the anxiety I think that she felt was just almost physical. Like I could almost feel it because she had had one eviction on her record before and the judge that she was to go before to present the CDC order again was the same judge who evicted her in 2019. And she was terrified that although she had just sort of run into hard times like everyone else during this pandemic, she was afraid that the judge would remember her name and would or would remember her face and think she was just routinely delinquent on rent and would kick her out just because of that. She was lucky enough to be able to stay, but at this point she is making plans for the unfortunate possibility that could be that she will have to live in her car if she is forced out of her apartment right now. Um, and I think of the of the four families, if she is forced to live in her car or into a homeless shelter, she will be one of three that for at least a period was homeless after after being evicted. Caroline, I come back to that stat as well, the 57,000 evictions, uh, despite the moratorium. I mean, it's a kind of a staggering figure. And I'm wondering, in the course of your reporting, does it seem like that is because is the legal system not working properly or the way it should to protect people or are there just too many loopholes in the in the moratorium to to allow landlords to to keep filing these eviction notices like what do you think is going on there's a couple of things that uh factor into why so many evictions were filed during the pandemic first of all the moratorium is not actually just a blanket moratorium and i think that name alone confuses people they think that there's a moratorium. Landlords can't evict anyone. Some people, tenants, don't even know the moratorium exists. So there is a lack of uh, awareness and a lack of getting the information out. I mean, getting the information out about tenants' rights and the CDC moratorium, the state moratorium that existed before DeSantis let it expire, that really fell to nonprofits, to the legal aid community, and to journalists. There wasn't a huge push from the state itself to let people know about their rights. Uh, that being said, too, there are some very specific requirements to fall under the CDC moratorium. It's not just enough to say, I'm a renter, I can't be evicted. You have to have a COVID-19 hardship. You need to be able to attest that you would become homeless and that you've exhausted every effort to find some government assistance to get caught up on your rent. That being said, there are many people who fit that bill that were still not spared. The other thing that I really wanted to emphasize with this project was the unequal protections for homeowners versus renters. So if you are a renter and you fall behind on, you know, your rent renter payments, uh, you miss it one month, you can immediately now have an eviction filed against you and you could become homeless in a matter of weeks, whereas homeowners just have more protections. The foreclosure process is much lengthier. By federal law, lenders cannot even file the first legal notice against a delinquent homeowner for their mortgage until four months after the first mispayment. 
I talked with uh, Chief Judge Donald Myers over the Orange and Osceola uh, courthouses, and he said that even in our system, we recognize that, that the foreclosure process is really probably going to take upwards of a year. You are not going to become homeless in a matter of weeks. And that's why we wanted to focus on tenants, that they were so much more exposed even if you just look at the difference in the median income between renters and homeowners, homeowners as a whole were on much more solid financial footing before the pandemic began. The median income for a homeowner in Florida is about $70,000, whereas for a renter, it's about $42,000. And so many renters, I mean, literally 1.4 million of Florida's 2.7 million renter households spend more than 30% of their yearly income on rent. That is a huge chunk of money that you're paying on your housing. And when you suddenly get laid off from your job and you have no income, that lack of wages has eroded the ability to have savings for a situation like this. But I mean, if you have no income for a year, how are you really going to catch up on that rent unless these cities and counties make rental assistance programs as accessible as possible? Mm. If you're just joining me, my guests are Orlando Sentinel reporters Desiree Stinnett and Caroline Glenn. We're talking about their series Locked Out, which is about evictions during the pandemic. Desiree, you've been covering race and inequality for some time now. Um, if you kind of take a step back and look at some of the responses that we're seeing to the disparities that the pandemic has essentially widened, are we seeing a, enough of a response from either local and state governments or the federal government? or other agencies, and, and um, how do you see this kind of playing out from here? Well, I think that a lot of the um, approach to to housing and evictions and, and, and sort of closing that gap there, at least from my viewpoint, seems to be viewed holistically. It seems to be viewed in the terms of let's help all of Orange County or let's help low-income residents get affordable housing. Like Caroline said, uh, Florida is one of the states with the largest affordable housing problems in the country. And, And we, like many other cities and states, don't have enough stock for the needs of our of our community. What I'm finding is that a lot of the conversation is not specifically focused on race, if I'm to be honest. But I, I think that in many instances, when you focus on low income communities, because unemployment is higher in black communities and black residents are overrepresented in lower paying jobs. Sometimes when you focus on low income, you are able to sort of capture the groups that need help the most. For example, when the county organized its rental assistance program, we did find when we looked at the data that those who got the most assistance through the program did live in the zip codes with the highest black populations. So it's not that that, that there's nothing happening to sort of close that racial inequality that gap, but it is sort of focused more through the lens of income disparity versus racial inequality. But what I also talked to experts that looked at this through a racial lens, um, what they were also saying was that we have to, going forward, start to create housing policy that specifically looks at this through the lens of race because we got into the situation with policy that specifically looked at housing through the lens of race. And I and I mentioned redlining and passing earlier, but um, in case people are not entirely familiar with, with what, I, what I'm referring to there, it was once legal U.S. policy to discriminate 
in housing and to decide the value of a home or who would get a loan based solely on race. And the presence of, of Black people in a neighborhood automatically lowered the, um, the housing value. And it's being Black, even if you were financially able to take on a mortgage, it was legal based on U.S. law to deny you that mortgage, as particularly in particular neighborhoods that were white. So I think that there are a lot of experts who look at this through an equity lens, who see this as a problem that cannot be solved unless we look at it, look at the solutions through a racial lens as well. Caroline, it seems like there's there's a lot more reporting to be done, and you're obviously going to be, you both of you are going to be following this, this story pretty closely. Uh, and it's not just as simple as saying, you know, when the economy picks back up again and people get their jobs back, their housing situations will resolve, right? I mean, it seems like this has got a pretty long tail on it. Absolutely. Eviction can change the course of your entire life. And there are children wrapped up in this as well, who this will change the trajectory of their lives. And so far, we have not seen much interest from state legislative leaders to take a comprehensive approach at solving some of these issues. Uh, And they all roll together. You know, the conversation around eviction is also a conversation around, like Desiree pointed out, race equality. It's a conversation around wages, public transit, access to education. It's a conversation around safe living conditions. It's so many things. And that's been a conversation that's been going on in Central Florida for many, many years. Uh, It didn't make it into this story, but I talked with a couple of the labor unions that represent hospitality uh, workers, and they told me, this is the same story, but just in the worst possible circumstances. We know in Central Florida about these wage gaps We know that they exist for women. We know that they exist for people of color. And what I wanted to emphasize is that these were the people who were living paycheck to paycheck even before the pandemic started. And then once it hit, there just was nothing really to save them. And we'll get into this much more in the third part of this series, but there is not the same concerted effort to lobby for tenants as there is to lobby for landlords. In the state of Florida, the landlord lobby is very influential and very powerful. And that is the thing that tenant advocates point to as the reason why more protections for renters have not gone through. I mean, another huge part of this issue is the laws that exist in Florida that allow eviction to be so fast paced, that allow it to be so harsh. And so far, there does not seem interest in changing those. But on the local level, there are things that counties and cities can do. They could make these rental assistance programs permanent. They could pilot things like right to counsel laws. They could set up mediation programs. They could find ways to discourage landlords from just doing evictions and finding a different way to resolve the issue. Because even if a tenant wins their case, there's still an eviction on their record. I think one um, other thing to remember here, too, is that for the people who already have an eviction on their record and they are lucky enough to find a landlord who will take them in despite that eviction, 
the quality of housing that you have access to once you've had an eviction on your record drops dramatically. So one of the families, the, the mother that, that is featured in my story, Bathsheba Collingwood, who lives on Mercy Drive, the apartment that she's trying so hard to save has had mold issues since the day she moved in. And if she and her all three of her children take a shower back to back, her closet floods. And it's been that way since she's moved in. And a part of the reason that so many people were kicked out and she's watched dozens of her neighbors get evicted. Um, I believe she told me that seven of the 40 other people who live there, when she moved in, only seven of them are still there now, just a year later. They all banded together to try to to speak up. They called code enforcement and reported the problems to the city. And in response, their landlord evicted them all. And and I think that the problem here is that, like Caroline said, because our laws in Florida are so landlord focused, renters have so few rights and, and so few protections, keeping them in housing at all if they've had an eviction and in housing that is safe and clean and um livable as well. So there's the, this is a problem with, with many, many sides. And the legislature this session had a chance to do something about it, and they chose not to. To both of your points, I mean, housing is an issue that we've been reporting on for a long time, it seems, in central Florida. And the pandemic has really laid some of those problems bare in a, a pretty big way. Well, we've been speaking with Desiree Stennett. She's a senior reporter who writes about race and equality in Florida and Caroline Glenn, business reporter covering workers, housing and economic injustice. We've been talking about their series, Locked Out, about evictions during the pandemic. Caroline and Desiree, thank you both very much for your reporting. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Still to come, Opera Orlando's performance of As One shines a light on the trans experience at a time when the rights of transgender Americans are also under the national spotlight. That's when Intersection returns. This is Intersection, I'm Matthew Petty. Opera Orlando's performance of As One showcases the transgender experience at a time when trans rights are being challenged in Florida and other states across the country. For more on the work, we're joined by Opera Orlando director Gabriel Pricer and conductor Alexandra Enyart. Alexandra Enyart, uh, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Also joined by Gabe Pricer. Thank you as well. Always a pleasure. Thanks for your time, Matt. Okay, so Gabe, just tell us a little bit about the opera As One, the the plot and uh, what it's about. Sure. As One has been on our radar since we launched Opera Landa back in 2016. It's a a one-act chamber opera in English written for two voices and string quartet. And since its premiere in 2014, it's really taken the opera industry by storm. It's quickly become the most performed American opera in the repertoire. And part of that is it's a very compelling, moving, timely story about the coming of age story of a transgender woman, Hannah. And we, we find in this story that's really a universal message for all of us, a message of acceptance, uh, self-discovery. It's also an opportunity for us to, to learn uh, more about the transgender community. Now, had you planned uh, to showcase this opera this year already, because as you know, and as we we talked about, um, kind of offline, Gabe, the uh, you know obviously transgender rights and some of the erosion of those has been at the forefront of the national conversation in the last few months in Florida and other states. So is this just kind of happenstance, or did you think, okay, this is a good opportunity to to stage this opera now? Yeah, you know, as one has. Uh 
been in our plans for the past uh, two years and we, we did have it slotted for this season and it's something we had to get the rights for, get the cast for, uh, get Alexandria to come in and conduct it, you know, get all the pieces in place. But it is interesting that kind of just recently um, transgender issues have once again um, gotten out in the news. It seems like uh, there's this ebb and flow when they when they start to pop up. Um, and I think all the more reason why our community needs more education around uh, transgender individuals and what those issues are and that these people are just like any of us and, and they should have the same rights as any of us. Alexandra, is this an opera you've conducted on stage before or is this is a new work for you? No, I've conducted it. This is my fifth production. So this is for two two voices. So there are two people on stage at all times or do they sort of come in and out? How does that work? Yes. So there are two voices on stage. One of them is Hannah before and one of them is Hannah after. Uh, it's a binary representation of transness, which um, it's definitely, you know, it's just the method that is used to tell this story. It's really not the only way transness is experienced. And I think that's really significant for people to know is that we're not all walking around with before and afters, but it's a good storytelling method for the purpose of this show. It works very effectively to have a, a Hannah that is a baritone and a Hannah that is a mezzo. And the two of them are on stage the entire time together, basically reliving their experiences from two different points of view, from what we would see as a more male perspective and what we would see as a more female perspective. Um, but at the same time, none of them are truly male because Hannah is a woman. So we have all these um, perspectives together and all these different viewpoints, but it's really just trying to speak to bits and pieces of Hannah, just like anyone. You never know what someone is having entirely the whole time or what their, what their truest, deepest thoughts are. And I think that that's captured in this. It's, it's kind of like going inside someone's head. If you're just joining me, my guests are Alexandra Enyart. She is the conductor of Opera Orlando's new production of As One, also joined by Gabe Pricer, the executive director of Opera Orlando. So, Gabe, I want to turn to you for a moment. Tell me about the the other performers. Like, what can you tell me about the the two singers who'll be um, on stage during this? Yeah, we were really pleased to have baritone Michael Kelly from New York City and mezzo-soprano Lise Quagliata, who's based out of Florida now, to join us uh, for this production because they've both done these roles before. Uh, and, and as you can imagine, with new opera, um, it's invaluable when the singers have, have done the roles. You know, and he, There's not a lot of singers that have taken on these roles. Um, also, Michael is a real activist for the LGBTQ community. He's a member of that community and he considers himself an educator in that regard. So I think he, he takes, he brings a real sensitive approach uh, to this character. Um, and we had a recent uh, program through our Representation Matters series where, where Elise said, you know, it's for her as, you know, a straight woman taking on this, this trans experience, she said, you know, I, I have to understand that I'm the smallest voice in the room. And so she just has this very open personality to really listen um, and, and allow the character to reflect through her. Uh, but I think they're both beautiful performers. It's their Opera Orlando debut. It's our, their first time joining us. Um, we're very excited to have them. So Alexandra, 
are there a lot of um, transgender conductors or, or performers in the world of, of classical music or opera? No, not at all. There aren't very many of us at all. Um, in the field of opera, uh, in terms of singers, um, the most famous is Lucia Lucas. Um, and she made history when she did Don Giovanni, um, which is, I think, one of the first um, major roles with an opera company with a trans singer in the lead. Um, I'm, yeah, I have to fact check to make sure that's exactly right, but I believe that's what it was, and that was only a few years ago. Um, then I know there are a few other singers that are out there. Mr. Liz um, Buck up in New York City has done this one, and he has performed, but he plays the role of after. Um, so, you know, it's, it's interesting that way of trying to find shows that can really showcase trans performers um, in a beautiful and meaningful way. Uh, and I think that there's just so much adjusting that's happening in the field in general. In terms of transgender opera conductors, I don't know of anybody else. Um, in terms of transgender conductors, I do know now one. I used to know zero, so I'm thrilled to have that number be one and to have another colleague in the field. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, um, it's an uncharted territory in some ways. Um, there's historically the trans conductor that uh, we know about. Her name is Angela Morley. She was a film score conductor uh, and she worked. Yeah, and she actually, she also did arranging. She arranged, in fact, from Star Wars, the original one, that the special moment with Use the Force Luke, it's actually a trans woman's arrangement of John Williams. Oh, really? Um, score. I mean, she is just incredible and amazing. No one's ever heard of her. You can't see any videos of her because she's always behind the screen. And I think that's how trans people are going to come into music and into conducting. You know, it's a really, you can see a trajectory and how a diversity enters the podium. Film score, no one has to see the conductor, so diversity can be there easier. I work in opera, which is one step closer, but still, most of the time I'm in a pit. You know, it's when we see the trans conductor on the orchestra podium with the same acclaim as Maranatha or, or you know, other American fantastic conductors, that um, that's where people kind of have that... Um, something that that's something about what a conductor is and there's that i guess it's in a way it's the fantasy in it, of itself this whole like maestro myth around the conductor but nonetheless there is that whole feeling of making it to the orchestral stage is where people really focus on the conductor in a different way and i i think that that is a kind of a a, a good indicator for where we are in this progress has moved from film to opera i wouldn't be surprised if we see a transgender conductor in ballet for similar reasons <laughs> where we're in the pit and then this this movement more and more to center stage do you feel like sometimes you would rather just kind of focus on the music or like is it is it difficult to do that because i'm, I'm wondering kind of how much of what you do you sort of are, are always conscious of being a role model and and sort of forging a path and being a pioneer and does that sometimes get a little heavy it absolutely gets heavy i would say that um one of the big challenges and one of the big realities of of my life and my work is that for me, 
there is an aspect of as far as I can make it, that is a huge win for my entire community. Um, it's been in moments, it's an incredible amount of pressure when things feel dry, like in terms of gigs are drying up or even throughout the pandemic, I was like, am I letting down uh, a whole community of people? Am I, you know, how close am I to being a person who can break through and be significant in a way where people see us and people can care? Because I remember when I was coming out, you know, it was very hard to find Angela Morley. Um, and so I looked hard to find her. So I think that my goal has always been to try to be easy to find. I don't love that I always say transgender conductor and put those words together, but I think it's very important that people be able to find me that way. In another century or something like that, I would love to not have that be something that I have to focus on or worry about. But I feel like as much as I love music and care about it, it's impossible for me to ignore the social implications of what I'm doing. And that anytime I go out there and show how we can be happy, we can make it, we can be okay, it makes it one piece less likely that a trans child will hurt themselves or one piece less likely that a trans parent will throw out a trans child and or a cis parent will throw out a trans child. And I think that that is really significant. And so I always hold on to this. The ultimate goal is to lower the amount of harm that happens to my community. And music is a wonderful vehicle for that. And, and that's what it is. That's, that's how it is. Um, and I, I think that it would be very hard for me. I used to pretend that I could separate the two and there, they are not possible to separate. Um, yeah, whatever I'm doing comes with that mission. Gabriel, uh, wanted to bring you back into this conversation for a moment. So, um, what are you hoping audiences will take away from this opera? Well, I, I really appreciate Alessandra kind of opening up and, and sharing so much. And that, that to me is one of the reasons why we wanted to do this piece was, you know, the arts can share all stories. And it's important for us to know that transgender people are, are just regular people. You know, we're, we're all trying to discover ourselves, find ourselves and, and hopefully accept who we are because um, we can't really be accepted by society until we accept ourselves for who we are, right? Um, and so in addition to the performances, we're actually doing a panel talk uh, tomorrow with community leaders just to have an open conversation, an open discussion about our transgender community here in Orlando. And there, there are transgender individuals that live with us, uh, that are our neighbors. And um, we, we need to know what their needs are and, and need to know that they're being taken care of just like everyone should be taken care of. So that, that panel talk will be with 26 Health. Uh, one of our, our, our partners and sponsors for this production, uh, the LGBTQ Center and Zebra Coalition. So I think our goal with the panel talk, with this performance is, is just transgender education and just uh, allowing people to um, understand what, what that is, right? What, what the word transgender even means and then enjoy this beautiful story of, of self-discovery, of just accepting oneself. And it really is beautifully composed. Uh, Laura's music, so accessible. Uh, the string quartet will have musicians from the Orlando Philharmonic, including Rima, who we all know and love here. Um, 
so so whatever wherever you land on the politics, you know, this is not meant to be a political uh, thing by any means. It just happens to be in the news right now. It's it's a universal story of finding oneself, and it's an opportunity for us to learn more about our community. Well, Alexandra Enyat is uh, the conductor of Opera Orlando's uh, production of As One. Alexandra, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. And also joined by Gabriel Price, the executive director of Opera Orlando. Gabriel, thanks as always. Thanks, Matt. Hope to see you all at the opera. And you can catch Opera Orlando's performances of As One Friday, May 21st at 7.30pm and Sunday, May 23rd at 2pm at Harriet's Orlando Ballet Centre. Up next, cities burnish their green credentials as the perils of climate change become an even more pressing problem. We're back in a minute. Guess who's back on the mic again? Me and Dane back with the big announcement. We about to rock SSDM. This boy's chain says price carbon. Green standard, affordable housing, take a rainbow, water conservation. This is Intersection. I'm Matthew Petty. As the impact of climate change become ever more urgent, cities are stepping up their efforts to become carbon neutral. So how does the work of local government on green initiatives fit into the state and federal picture? And how is the message of sustainability playing out with the next generation of Floridians? Well, joining me is Chris Castro. He's the Director of Sustainability and Resilience at the City of Orlando. Chris, thanks for being with me. Thanks, Matt. Also joined by Susan Glickman. She's the Florida Director for the Southern Alliance for Clean Energy. Susan, thanks as well. Yes, hi, Matt. So I wanted to start with a sort of a general question uh, for both of you. Susan, I might begin with you. Um, how urgent do you think uh, this notion of um, sustainability and clean energy is? And, and what are you seeing in terms of cities, municipalities, states, even kind of picking up the, the baton and, and running with it? Florida is deeply threatened by the existential threat of global climate change. Our pillars of our economy, from tourism to agriculture, real estate and ports are all uh, affected. And in the absence of federal leadership until recently and of a lack of leadership at the state level in Florida, it's local governments that are really stepping in to fill the void. So whether it's cities like Orlando or regional efforts like the East Central Florida Regional Resilience Collaborative, um, they're really, the local governments are stepping up. Chris, what does that uh, look like as far as Orlando and as far as your concern? So uh, you've got a number of kind of initiatives underway, but sort of globally, how would you say cities are doing in terms of uh, kind of working to to you know, make themselves more resilient and, and make the communities more resilient? Well, you know, cities, it's been studied that, that cities are contributing about 70% of the problem, 70% of the carbon and greenhouse gas emissions that are fueling the climate crisis. And so although cities are the problem, they're also beginning to really accelerate action to address this issue, knowing that, you know, this is being manifested in our backyards. Uh, and so since as far back as 2007 with the launch of Greenworks Orlando, Mayor Dyer has, has really been at the forefront of trying to get not only our city, but cities across the state and the region and the country to, to step up on this issue. We've, grown, we've uh, joined the Global Covenant of Mayors for Climate and Energy. Uh, Mayor Dyer sits on the steering committee for the Climate Mayors Network. Uh, we've declared a climate emergency and most recently have joined what's called the Cities Race to Zero, which is a campaign to get us to a zero carbon economy by 2050. Susan, why do you think it is that it's been left to, uh, you know, 
smaller governments to try and tackle the problem? What, why is it that um, that they've had to sort of pick things up and 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 uh, move forward? No doubt that uh, there's an industry that's been built up around fossil fuels. So whether it's people who sell coal or uh, gas uh, products, methane gas, fracked gas, as well as petroleum. So there's an industry that's made a lot of money, you know, putting gas in your car. But now, and as Chris has mentioned, the electrification of transportation is a hugely key component of this whole transition to a clean energy economy. And electric vehicles are much more efficient. With an electric bus, you're going to save about $350,000 over the life of the bus. And it's just a much more uh, comfortable ride. It's quieter, cleaner, and you don't have all those air pollutants that uh, cause so many uh, public health problems. So we want to, um, you know, go to the source of these problems. You have local governments that can green and clean up their own operations, and then they can also help their uh, residents uh, get more efficient. Uh, The city of Orlando and Orange County offer a financing program called SELF, the Solar and Energy Loan Fund. So about 27% of our energy is used just by air conditioners. So if more people were to get into a high-efficiency air conditioner, not only is their home going to be more comfortable, but they're going to save money as well and reduce this pollution uh, that's causing such a problem for our state. Just quickly adding on to that, if I could, you know, we are seeing at the city of Orlando, as we transition our city vehicles to electric, we are seeing some of those savings. Uh, One of the studies we just did showed about $4,000 of savings over the useful life of that vehicle compared to a conventional gasoline vehicle. And so Susan's absolutely right. Not only is it cheaper to to actually power these cars, because out of the wall, it's about, you know, less than a dollar per gallon equivalent. And right now, gallon at the gasoline pumps are, are going up and up. And we know mm-hmm. some of the challenges even just recently with the you know, shortage, so to speak. But in short, it's not only cheaper to power it, it's cheaper to maintain it, to own it. And in the long run, the other in- important economic development point is that people don't realize that when we power our cars with electricity, that's coming from our local electric grid. And we're keeping those dollars here cycling within the city of Orlando, especially with OUC being our hometown utility, instead of that dollar leaving our city, leaving our state, and sometimes leaving the country and going to where that energy is coming from. What about mass transit then? I mean, uh, you know, there are are some cities in the United States where they have a pretty robust uh, mass transit set up. Orlando um, does have mass transit, but it's, it's not as you know, robust in some places. So how, if you look at Florida generally, Susan, how how does the state do as far as kind of making sure it's people can get around if they don't have their own car? Well, I would have to admit that Florida has been behind the, the curve. When uh, President Obama was first elected, we know Governor Rick Scott turned back federal money to create a high-speed rail, which would have actually gone from the Tampa to the Orlando area. Uh, the um, private sector has stepped in, and I'll let Chris speak to that because there is some rail and there are efforts to connect the state in a better way. So that is one avenue, but there's also um, electric 
the helicopters to move people around. Mm-hmm. Um, there's high-speed uh, bus systems, rapid transit that are being uh, debated and looked at in different parts. So it's probably going to be kind of a patchwork quilt for a while, but I would love to see more high-speed rail. Yeah, most definitely. And building on what Susan's mentioned, I think locally we are fortunate. Uh, Lynx, our, our regional trans- transit authority, has come out publicly in making a commitment to transition their vehicles to 100% electric and alternative fuel by 2030. That's matching the city of Orlando's same commitment to transition all 3,000 of our vehicles to alternative fuel and electric. So we are starting to see some progress. And, and in downtown Orlando, we have the limo system, the bus rapid transit to Susan's Point, and it helps to provide a free service of transportation, not just for downtown, but some of the surrounding neighborhoods um, that are often transit dependent. And we're excited that we now have the first fleet of electric buses, zero emission buses in downtown uh, that are operating. And by the end of this year, we'll have a total of 14 of these zero emission buses operating in all of the limo lines, Orange Line and the Grapefruit Line, as well as the extensions that go north. And um, we are seeing some excitement around even some of the private sector. Some of our larger theme parks are looking towards electric buses. Um, Susan alluded to the Bright Virgin Brightline train that is currently being constructed and extended up here to Orlando and hopefully in the future out to Tampa. And, you know, one of the other interesting stories is around electric vertical takeoff and landing. Um, EVTOL, what we call, and this concept of urban air mobility is going to be part of our lexicon, part of our future, and Orlando has kind of put our stake in the ground to be one of the first cities to um, install a vertiport, one of these vertical airports, and get things moving, starting in the Lake Nona community mm-hmm. in South Orlando. Uh, Chris, I wanted to ask you too about the the video you produced recently, because it seems like um, you know part of the the solution is also kind of um, publicity and 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 awareness. You you made a, a I guess you could call it a hip hop video. Um, <laughs> You're actually on a roof of somebody's house with a boombox at some point, I think, or at least one of these. Uh, just talk a little bit about what's going on there and who you're trying to reach. Yeah, we, we have a local rap artist. His name is Dane Myers, and uh, he's, he's been using his talent to raise awareness about sustainability through the arts. And so the last two songs that he's published, I've played a cameo in, and the most recent one was actually a rap song that we co-wrote about the city of Orlando. And it was for a, a battle between city sustainability directors across the southeast United States. So we were competing with Charlotte and Atlanta and St. Pete and Miami. And I'm happy to say that our music video did win first place for most creative. Uh, and uh, it's just, you know, I think it's important that people realize that we can have fun while moving in a more sustainable direction and, and addressing climate change. This is about mobilizing and changing hearts and minds. And I truly believe the arts are a critical piece in making that transformation. And so I'm excited that, you know, we got some really cool local music to kind of vibe to as we go down the street and hopefully our electric buses. Well, so hang on a minute. I just, I just wanted to go back to that. You, you said there was, a, there was a rap battle between sustainability directors across the state? That is true, yes. The Southeast Sustainability Directors Network, which is a peer network of cities that work together on all types of sustainability and climate strategies and and we had an annual conference last week, and part of that was a session bringing together the top sustainability directors to kind of have a fun rap battle. And I'll tell you, it was the best conference session that I've ever been to. Uh, and, you know, we just had a blast hearing from the creative 
talents of some of my peers across the, the southeast. That, that is one of the nerdiest things I think I've, I've heard all day, but it's pretty funny. <laughs> Not everybody gets their information the same way. Sure. And, you know, the news business in, in general has changed and shifted in terms of how people get information. So I think younger uh, generations do get more of their information out of music and you know, just sort of other forms. Obviously, it's online, it's TikTok, mm-hmm. and uh, it's very important that we get the word out. So communicating in those ways uh, is, is vital because we need everybody to take action. Climate change is quite unique in that it's something where the individual can take action. You can make your home more efficient. You can get solar. You can drive an electric vehicle, or you can abandon your car all together and use public transit. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's also something that requires global response to local governments, state governments. And what happens in Antarctica and in the Arctic doesn't stay in the Arctic. It's going to impact sea level rise right here in the state of Florida. So um, it is an individual issue and it is a global issue all at the same time. And that is quite unique. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and Chris, I know you've you've got to run, but I just wanted to ask a, a, a wrap up question real quick. Uh, I mean, is this kind of a is this sort of generational attitude to climate change on your side? I mean, Susan, just in thirty seconds, would you say that that maybe the the next generation is more receptive to the idea that things need to be done quickly to solve this problem? The younger generation not only understands the problems, but they have the confidence in new technologies that we can also uh, provide the solution. And we do have those solutions. It just takes political will because we're moving away from sort of the traditional way that we've gotten energy. And there are going to be some winners and losers in that process. Um, But what's at stake is just too important, and we need to move quickly. Mm -hmm. And Chris Castro, would you say there's a receptive audience for the the folks that you're reaching out to with the the music videos and 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 other younger people who maybe not so worried about what is power in their car, just as long as it gets them from A to B. Yeah, I mean, I do think that we're starting to see some some healthy dialogue and interest in in sustainability locally from from all generations, but definitely from the youth. And this music video that we just pushed out um, has been going viral on the social media platforms, um, tens of thousands of views already, you know, on the video. And we feel that you know more arts. More music is is going to be a key strategy in in mobilizing again uh, all generations to to consider this transformation and to change hearts and minds to move us in a cleaner, healthier, and more sustainable direction here in Orlando and certainly beyond. Well, Chris Castro is the director of sustainability and resilience for the city of Orlando. Chris, thanks for joining us. Thank you. And also joined by the Florida director of the Southern Alliance for Clean Energy, Susan Glickman. Susan, thank you as well. Yeah, thank you, Matt. And here's a taste of that green rap battle from Chris Castro and Dane Myers. You can find a link on our website, wmfe.org slash intersection. Guess who's back on the mic again? Me and Dane back with the big announcement. Support for Intersection comes from Advent Health and from our listeners. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Matthew Petty. Follow me on Twitter at Matthew underscore Petty. Thanks for listening. Tight with the Transit Authority. We making green a priority.